So tonight I want to talk to you about the greatest dynasty of all time uh, from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So find your place there. And then go ahead and, and mark a place in Ephesians chapter number 2. So find your place in 2 Samuel 7 and then take a sermon note or bubblegum wrapper. Or if you're special and have a Bible with two ribbons, take your extra ribbon and put it over there. When you hear me say 2 Samuel, or uh, Ephesians 2 rather, uh, you'll know it's, 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 it's the end of the sermon. So um, that's where we're headed. We're headed to Ephesians chapter number 2. But tonight I want to talk to you about the greatest dynasty of all time. But before we get into that, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to just kind of shout out. I'll take maybe four or five. Who do you think is the greatest dynasty? We'll, we'll go with sports. Who's the greatest sports dynasty? Cowboys. Who said that? Who is the, who is the, Both? Wow. Okay. Do we have any refutations to that? Cowboys, anybody else? Yankees. Yankees. When I think of baseball, I think of Yankees. Who said that? Golden State. Celtics. Now, technically, Celtics has, you know, is, is, the, is the greatest basketball dynasty. Um, technically, I, I guess. So, I thought of this with the 2022-23 college football season yet to roll around. Many of you, I'm sure, are excited about that. We have, I see an Iowa fan over here. I see some K-State fans Back there, there's a Longhorn fan back there. I'm all about Reckham Tech, baby. I'm all about Reckham Tech. But I thought that uh, at the start of this sermon, I would give some love to probably, I hate to say it, the greatest football, college football dynasty of all time. Let me be very clear. I strongly dislike this team. I can't even sing a certain hymn without thinking of my dislike for this team because of the word crimson in it. I do not like crimson and cream. It's uh, disgusting. But nonetheless, they're probably the greatest dynasty in college football. Here they are. Alabama. That's not where you thought I was going. Was it OU fans? That's crimson and white, I guess. But, But I mean, since 2009, right? They've dominated the college football landscape. No question about it. Here's another dynasty. Um, From 1957 to 1969, the Celtics dominated the league, winning 11 championships in 13 years. And eight in a row from 1959 to 1966. That's a true definition of a dynasty. The Celtics dominated the league during uh, the, the 50s, and they had guys like Bill Russell, Bob Cousy, and some guy I've never heard of, John Havlicek, but apparently he was a Hall of Famer and important. The Boston Celtics, once again, next slide, uh, built a dynasty in the 80s. Many hardcore basketball fans believe the 1986 Boston Celtic basketball team was the greatest basketball team ever Assembled. I mean, these were guys who were superstars, but all they cared about was winning. Winning at all costs. I mean, they had Larry Legend. Larry Joe 
Bird. There's no one like Larry Joe Bird in today's NBA. Had guys like Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, and uh, my great uncle Bill Walton, who won the sixth man of the year that year. That team went on to win the NBA championship, beat the Houston Rockets in the finals, and only lost three games in the playoffs that year. And next we have the Chicago Bulls from 1990 to 98. Here's a picture of their team. Just kidding, here's the team here. So the photo obviously doesn't contain the entire team, but it's an iconic photo consisting of Jordan, his right-hand man, Pippen, the Worm, Dennis Rodman. I don't know if Ron Harper has a nickname or Tony Kukoc, but but there they are. That's an iconic photo. I mean, that guy, like, that's the goat right there, folks. That's the absolute greatest player of all time. And in the 90s, if you grew up in the 90s, or you lived in the 90s in general, there's no denying that this may be the greatest dynasty of all time simply because they had the greatest player of all time to ever lace up a pair of Nikes, Michael Jordan. In the 90s, this team won six out of eight titles, but I'm convinced they would have won every title in the 90s were it not for uh, the 1993-94 Michael Jordan baseball conspiracy. I believe that's a conspiracy. I I think there were some gambling issues. I think he got got pushed out of the NBA with his gambling stuff. I I don't know. I can't prove that. But I've got a conspiracy that Michael Jordan didn't just leave because he wanted to swing a baseball bat for a career. Like, who wants to do that? (laughs) My bad. My fault. Love you. No, that's, that's, that's great. Um, I, I also believe they would have won every title in the 90s at were it not for this man, Jerry Krause. A lot of you are thinking, if you haven't seen The Last Dance, this guy looks like he should be a villain in some movie. And he was uh, sort of a villain in the 90s as he pretty much destroyed the late 90s Bulls. It's this guy that single-handedly stopped them from winning two more titles at least. It's this guy right here that forced Michael Jordan pretty much out of the NBA. The next team is the last team I want to show you. It's the current dynasty today, the Golden State Warriors. They won their first title of the, of the decade back in 2014, or the last decade, I guess, in 2014. And they've won four of the last eight NBA titles. They've been in six of the last eight NBA finals But the cool thing about this team is that after they lost in the finals in 2019, uh, because of Clay Thompson getting hurt and and, uh, Kevin Durant getting hurt, most people said they're done. You remember that? Sports fans, you'll remember that? On SportsCenter for all summer long that year, all you heard, the Warriors are done. And the Warriors almost proved it the next year. They went 15 and 50, I believe. They were the worst team in the NBA. Fast forward another year, two years later, and they won the most recent NBA championship and are predicted to win the next three to five NBA titles. That's a dynasty. It's something special to be part of a dynasty. It's something special to win almost all of the time, is it not? There's something special about it when all you do is win. Some of you in here tonight, you know what that's like. You come from a family, you went to a school, you work somewhere that always wins. Your family is a dynasty. 
You have a line of uh, a long line of successful people. Your family does. You went to a school where your school was known for winning sports all the time and were known for putting out the brightest pupils. And you work somewhere or own a business that wins far more than it loses. Do you know what it's like to be a part of a dynasty? Something that has long-term success. However, you still aren't a perfect dynasty, are you? Though you win most of the time, you don't win all the time. And though your family mainly consists of successful people, every family puts out a dud or two. Your team, you're laughing at me like I'm the dud of my family. What's going on? Your team may win a lot. Your family may win a lot. Your business, your school, your academics, whatever may win a lot. But you don't win every game you play, right? No one's perfect. Okay, there's others in here. And you have no idea what it's like to be a part of a dynasty. Ancestry.com, as far back as it can go, will tell you that your family barely ever puts someone out that's worth mentioning. It seems like your family's cursed. You're cursed with a family addiction, or uh, you're cursed with a bad name, or you're known for not being able to keep a job. Your family has a history with marriage and remarriage and divorce, or abuse of some kind. Some of you went to a school where, where your team was never expected to win. Some of you went to a school where your school never received award money for putting out bright academic students. You've never really had a thriving, successful career. And you've mainly worked a job that's got you from week to week. You've never known what it's like to be a part of a dynasty. I have great news for both groups tonight. Whether you're in the group that life has been extremely good to and know what it's like to win constantly or whether you're in the group that just gets by, if you're a Christian, you're a part of a dynasty that has never been or ever will be defeated. In this dynasty, Jerry Jones isn't the owner. Our Father God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all things is. In this dynasty, Jerry Krause isn't the manager. Instead, Jesus reigns supreme as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He calls the shots. In this dynasty, Michael Jordan isn't the star of the team that leads us to victory. No, the Spirit of God is the sustainer and leader of God's people in the church and universal body of kingdom citizens. This dynasty. No one is a loser in this dynasty because Jesus carried us on his shoulders to the victory of victories. We don't have to do anything to make this dynasty a dynasty. No, Jesus did it all and we get to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Every dynasty has an origin story, right? Tonight we're going to see the origin story, one of the origin stories of our dynasties. 2 Samuel 6 was all about the ark of God making its way to Jerusalem. And despite a bumpy journey and a death or two on the way, it made it there safely. If you remember, David danced with all his might with praise and celebration at the arrival of the ark of God. What was the now political permanent uh, city of Israel was now also going to be the political or the the permanent uh, religious city in Jerusalem. 
or in Israel. And you would think at this time in David's life that he would be content. Everything's going great for him. It's amazing. He's thriving. His, his team is winning. But in 2 Samuel 7, we're going to find him opposite of that. Though at rest from war, he was discontent in heart. So look down at your Bible at 2 Samuel 7 and find out why. It says, it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest about roundabout from all his enemies. The king said unto Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. God lives in a tent and I live in a palace. And Nathan said to the king, go. Do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. You see, David, in our first point uh, tonight, David wasn't satisfied with God's living situation. And he wanted to build him a new, luxurious, and permanent home. You see, as David sat at rest from all of his enemies, he, he couldn't help but wonder where God was resting. You see, the ark represented God's dwelling place on earth. It was where his presence resided. David couldn't help but think, man, I live in this palace and God lives in a tent. This isn't right. I believe this is a noble thought of David. He recognized that something was off when he contrasted his own living situation with that of God's. Not only did David think his God's dwelling place was laughable compared to his own, he would have been the laughingstock of his culture. You see, kings in that day, they would have built these elaborate, luxurious homes for their gods. And if David was known to keep his God in a tent, while he is living it up in this palace, yeah, he would have been the laughingstock. David didn't keep these feelings bottled up. Hardly ever did David keep feelings bottled up. But he told his trusted friend and prophet Nathan about it. Nathan's my kind of guy. I think uh, when studying this uh, text, I found my Bible character. Like, I, I've never really had like, oh man, if I was any Bible character, I'd be this one. I think I'd be Nathan the prophet. By the way, you've got to be careful with guys like Nathan. And I'll tell you why. They'll get you in trouble. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, Nathan would have been a seven on the list with an eight wing. That means that Nathan would have been super encouraging and enthusiastic, but also have an aggressive and confrontational side to him. Nathan shows here the default mode of all sevens. Can you see him in this conversation? Sevens are the ultimate hype men. David says, man, I'm distraught. I want to build God a house. I'm over here living in this mansion of cedar and, and God's living in a tent. I got to build God a house. And without even talking to God about it, without even thinking about it, without even, even hesitating, Nathan says, go for it. I like that plan. Let's do it. One night we were at Kelby Tomlinson's house and it was a pretty late night. And, and Kelby's like, yo, I need to build a doggy door for my dog. I'm like, let's do it right now. It's 10 o'clock at night and he's got a saw that I'm pretty sure was not meant for metal, cutting through metal in his house. The whole neighborhood, I guarantee you, was woke up that night. That's why sevens will get you in trouble. Because we're yes men, we're like, let's do it. If you have an idea, I'm all about it. Go for it. That's a seven. 
You see, this is why guys like me and Nathan don't get invited into budget meetings. (laughs) Tyler would say something like, you know, guys, I think we need a fountain outside of the church. Go for it. Get the fountain. Or Pastor Tyler would say something like, guys, I really think we need to get all the pastoral staff men a brand new car of whatever they want. Go for it. Who cares what the budget says? Who cares what David and Farron say? Go for it. That's why I'm not in the budget meetings. David had a desire to build God a house. And the guy who was God's voice in his life essentially said, David, that's a great plan. Go for it. Go for it. But in the next paragraph, God is going to say, "Uh, let's pump the brakes on this idea. Let's pump the brakes. Look at verse 4. It came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and even a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel? Whom I have commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye me not a house of cedar? The second thing we see is that God shut down David's desire to build him a house and instead promised to build him a house. When God visited Nathan that night, he started his new uh, house building project denial by saying that he has never lived in a house. God is saying this. Tell David that if I ever wanted a house, don't you think I would ask you for it, David? You see, a permanent dwelling place uh, or a permanent dwelling place uh, in a palace uh, of proportions that David wanted to build wasn't a concern of God's. God could have had the greatest palace of all time, but he, he wasn't concerned with it. He says, if I wanted it, I would say something about it, David. And God, in his word, makes perfectly clear That no temple or palace or tent can even contain him. In Acts chapter 7, as Stephen's preaching, he says, you're foolish. God doesn't actually dwell in a temple. There's no way it couldn't contain him. God is telling Nathan to tell David, David, buddy, I don't need you to build me a house. Instead, though, instead, David, instead of you building me a house... I'm going to build you a house. I thought David already lived in a house. Let's read verse 8. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I, listen, I took thee from the sheep coat. Basically says, I took you from being a shepherd, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made thee a great name like unto the name of great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And, let's keep reading, when thy days be fulfilled, 
when you're done, when you're dirt, David, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be a son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Wow. God said, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. No, no, David, David, David. I'm not talking about the cedar palace you already live in. I'm talking about a dynasty here. Uh, David, I'm talking about, I'm talking about a kingdom here. David, I'm talking about once you are gone, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever, David. For Solomon, and for his son, and for his son, and for his son, and for his son, and for his son. I'm going to establish your kingdom, no matter what. So I promise you, David, and when your kids act up, I'll chasten them. I'm going to be their father, and they're going to be my kids. David, I'm going to build you a dynasty like you've never heard of. Wow. Here's some things we find in that text. Number one, first, David, let me remind you of some things. It was me who called you from the pasture to the palace. Now, if David was a rapper, that'd be a pretty good first album. From the pasture to the palace. (laughs) Find that on SoundCloud. Guarantee it. Second, I have given you victory and have made your name great. Third, I have brought you into this land, this permanent dwelling for you to enjoy. Fourth, I will protect you from your enemies and give you rest from them. And fifth, David, you're not building me a house. I am building you one. When God said he was going to build David a house, he wasn't saying he was going to build him a mansion. No, it's an amazing, an amazing dynasty. So God made a promise to David that even if he or his sons, they sinned against them, the promises of God are without repentance. When God said something, he's not like us people who are fickle, who break our promises all the time. No, God says, David, no matter what, I'm going to do this in your life. Well, what's, what happens next? Verse 17 says, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So basically, that, that's, that saves us a lot of time tonight because we're not going to have to read everything we just read again. It just says, Nathan told David all that God told him. Can you imagine the disposition of David after he found out he couldn't do what he wanted to do for God? I thought maybe he'd be a little bit pouty. Maybe write a lament psalm or two about it. You know, get the old pen and paper out, go to work in his journal. But that wasn't David at all. No, instead, the third thing we see is David prayed a prayer of gratitude in response to God's promise. Look at verse 18. This is an amazing prayer of the Bible. I love this first first phrase. Then then went King David in. He sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house 
that thou hast brought me hitherto. And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come, and this is the manner of man, O Lord God. And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy servants, for thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt and from the nations and their gods? For thou, oh man, for thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. God, I'm holding you to a promise here. And let thy name, let your name, God, be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee in house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God. And thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. And with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. That's a prayer. That's a prayer right there. David, David sat before the Lord. I'm sure he was just floored. Have you ever had those moments? It's those moments where God does something really unique or really cool. Or maybe it's not unique. Maybe it's not cool. Maybe you're just thinking about all the small blessings in your life. And instead of sitting on the couch or a love seat and opening a Bible and praying, you just sit there in solitude. And you just think about how good he is. I'm sure that's what David did. Nathan comes back and says, hey, David, I put in the request. God said no. But he did say he's going to build you a dynasty. What do you mean? He said, he said he's, going to, he's going to, you know, once you're dead, he's going to establish your son. And once that son's dead, he's going to establish the next son. And the next son. And the next son. David, 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 your kingdom's going to be forever, David. Are you kidding me? I can just imagine the feelings of, of, of warmth and love and, and hopefulness and gratefulness that filled David's heart in this moment. And so he just went and he sat it before God. He just sat there. And then he opened his mouth and prayed, in, in my opinion, one of the best prayers I've ever read in the Bible. Do you notice what he said? As he, his prayer flowed from an unbridled place of gratitude. As he's overwhelmed that God would take a shepherd boy like him and do such a great thing for him. Do you notice how many times David addresses God in the prayer? He addresses God about ten times in the prayer. He says, oh Lord God, 
Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord God. Uh, A commentator says, he's saying this. Oh, sovereign Lord. He refers to himself as servant about seven times. Totally magnifying God. And seeing himself as 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 this humble servant that God is just using so graciously. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord God. So what exactly did David pray? Number one, he praised God for his incomparable sovereignty. He said, there is no one like you. No one like you, God. Sometimes when we pray, we can just adore. There is no one like you. The second thing he did was he praised God for his choosing of Israel as his people and his redemptive grace on their behalf. Oh God, thank you for choosing our people. Thank you for choosing us. God could have chosen anyone to use the way he used Israel. And you chose us, God? Are you kidding me right now? And you're going to establish us forever? And you're going to keep coming? Are you kidding me? Oh, praise you, God. And thirdly, he prayed that the promise God had made might indeed find fulfillment. Fulfillment to what? To the glory of his own holy name. Why? So that God's name would be great forever. God established this promise. Why? Not so Israel can become great or big or awesome or not so David can become this great king with a great lineage. No, God. So that you would be glorified. Are we awake tonight, church? Y'all sound like I'm preaching Jeremiah 7. This is 2 Samuel 7. This is a chapter of promise. This is a chapter of, of God's goodness to his people. A promise and a prayer. But what does it have to do with us this evening? My last point is God has fulfilled the promise of 2 Samuel 7. If the Bible stopped at Malachi, this would not appear to be the case. But it's only a few chapters later. We would think that because in just a few short chapters, David and his family lineage are going to start taking a nosedive, an unraveling. We're going to preach in a few chapters. And this prayer and this promise here, it's going to look like it was centuries ago compared to what's going to happen in a few chapters. David's family spins out of control and they eventually lose their kingdom. What? I thought God was going to establish forever the kingdom of David. As far as I know, we leave the Old Testament. There's not a Jewish king from David's lineage on the throne. Well, this was until Jesus arrived on the scene. I want to show you two texts. Jeremiah 23. It's the second slide of those texts. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and all Israel shall dwell safely. 
And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Fast forward to Luke 1. Luke 1 says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Oh, this promise is fulfilled. This promise is fulfilled and is being fulfilled right now. God has fulfilled this promise and the fulfilling of this promise is in his son, Jesus. And because of this, you and I are invited into this great dynasty. Imagine that. Me and you. Country folk from southwest Kansas. In a dynasty. You see, this dynasty isn't just for Solomon. It's not just for Hezekiah. It's not just for Israel. It's for you and me as we throw ourselves onto King Jesus and enter his bloodline and become children of the kingdom. Turn with me now to Ephesians 2. As we conclude tonight, I want to look at this text. It's an amazing letter that Paul wrote. He reminded these Gentile believers of an amazing truth. Look down at your Bible, verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at time, at that time you were without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments. Contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Having slain the entity thereby. Look, verse, look down at verse 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners. But fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What's Paul saying there? Oh, you Gentiles. You were dead. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses of your sins. You were dead, man. I just sounded like Joe Biden a little bit. Come on, man. Sorry. Rabbit, sevens, forgive me. Says you were dead. Not only were you dead, there was no hope for you being made alive. You're Gentiles. You have no right to this. You're an alien. You're a stranger. You're outside of the, pro- the covenant promise of Israel. You are dead. But by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, buddy, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that veil tore from top to bottom. 
And he became our great high priest, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile only, because God is no respecter of persons to therefore give you access. No, no. Uh, membership, citizenship into his dynasty. This ain't the Lakers we're talking about. This ain't the Cowboys. This ain't the Sooners. This ain't the Warriors. This ain't the Bulls. This ain't the Yankees. This isn't anything like that. This is the dynasty of the kingdom of heaven that is reigned and ruled by God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And you are invited into it. Are you a citizen of it tonight? So here's how we're going to conclude tonight's sermon. I want to pray a prayer of gratitude in response to God's fulfillment of his promise. Here's what we're going to pray. We're going to pray what David played. I just want the Miss Kay to come, just the pianist tonight. Here's how we're going to pray, church. Number one, like David, we're going to praise God for his incomparable sovereignty. There is no one like you, God. And then number two, we're going to thank God for his choosing of you. His choosing of you as his child and his redemptive grace on your behalf. And then number three, we're going to pray that this promise God has might uh, indeed find fulfillment to the glory of his own holy name so that his name would be great forever. But before we pray through this outline, I want to ask you. Are you a part of the dynasty? Are you a part of God's family, his kingdom? Have you done the only thing you need to do to enter into such a dynasty and place your faith in Jesus? Have you done that? If you have, you can pray this prayer to God. If you haven't, you can, but you're going to hit the ceiling. I want to invite you to do that tonight. Would you stand with me?